by our wonderful, 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 wonderful system, you get a public defender. You know how long on average you talk to your public defender before the trial? On average, about three minutes. The public defender asks you your name, asks you your age, asks you, can you say, can you summarize in one sentence why you're in here? You give your explanation, that's it. And then they become your lawyer. So that's all a long way of saying, yes, of course, African-Americans are overrepresented in our criminal justice system because they're overrepresented among the poor. And if you're poor, you can't afford a lawyer. Frankly, even if you're middle class, you can't afford a lawyer. A lawyer is $400, $500 an hour. You, uh, you know, with all due respect, Alex, unless you've gone through the criminal justice system, you have no idea what this is like. That alone is grounds for revolution. I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 44. As promised, I'm having a follow-up conversation with Professor Norman Finkelstein. He is the author of The Holocaust Industry. He's the author of Beyond Chutzpah. He's the author of many other texts, but most recently, I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. It is a book that tackles academic freedom, cancel culture, uh, and perhaps the, the most recent spate of politically correct authors on topics such as race. And that's what we're going to be covering on this show. We're going to be discussing some of these authors, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, but specifically Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. And uh, before we even get to the specifics of their books, uh, I guess the big elephant in the room would be Whenever you do uh, read modern day texts on race and racism, one thing that comes up again and again is this idea that there is no biological basis for uh, race or racism, which to me, it just strikes me as totally wrong. First of all, uh, you could imagine uh, a racism even without race in the sense that you could have, for instance, prehistoric groups growing up in a certain village. 10 miles over, there's another village that if you get caught, you know, without a family or friends, you might get killed. They might look exactly like you. They might sound exactly like you, uh, but maybe they dress a little bit differently, or maybe their linguistic patterns are a little bit different. And you can imagine how this gets transferred over to seemingly far less consequential things, such as what, what your physical appearance is like, right? Especially in, let's say, like a very diverse kind of city. Just, just thinking about how they present race and racism. Uh, do, uh, d does it cohere with your idea of maybe how racism develops? Like there's a class component to it. Obviously, there's a biological component. But how do you view uh, race and racism yourself? Just let's say growing up in a very diverse uh, place like Brooklyn, you've been a, a New York City resident, resident your whole life. I've been a New York City resident for the vast majority of my life. So maybe we could just kind of start with our uh, differing approaches uh, compared to Ken or D'Angelo here. Well, first of all, I'm very conservative on questions having to do with science, which is to say I don't speak on them unless I have uh, the requisite knowledge and actually more than the requisite knowledge, having an expert knowledge. I don't possess it and I don't pretend to possess it. 
I have talked to people in the various relevant disciplines in biology and evolutionary biology in particular. I have asked their opinions and um, in particular about the question which is most uh, salient, namely the relationship between race and intelligence. Now, uh, basically, <clears throat> the people I've discussed the matter with, I'll name one uh, because I don't think he will have trouble with me attributing, ascribing uh, any words to him. Uh, probably the, the currently one of the greatest living evolutionary biologists, Robert Trivers, happens to be an old friend of mine. And I've had, had several conversations out of curiosity where he stands on the issue of <clears throat> race. Uh, incidentally, Robert Trivers uh, was, I think, the only white member of the Black Panther Party. And what he's co-authored articles with Huey Newton, and one of his books is dedicated to Huey Newton. For those of you who don't know, Huey Newton was one of the leading figures in the Black Panther Party. So he has a <laughs> an odd uh, career trajectory, but he won the equivalent of the Japanese Nobel, and he's uh, by any reckoning first rank. He said to me that race was at some point in time probably a useful uh, uh, scientific concept, but now races are so intermixed that he said it no longer has uh, scientific value. Uh, and I'm, as I said, perfectly happy to defer to him uh, on that subject. I've talked to uh, top, one of the top scientists in the world. He happens to be in computer science, but he knows science. He knows science. And uh, I asked his opinion and about the relationship between race and uh, intelligence. And his, he was just so dismissive of the idea. He wasn't dismissive in a politically correct way. He's a scientist. He's a very serious scientist. <laughs> I'll even give his name because I don't think he'll like. His name is Yanni, uh, Mihalis Yanakakis. And he's over at Columbia University. Uh, by, any, by any conventional standing, he's one of the great living scientists in the world, won all the medals and all the awards. Uh, and he was dismissive of it, as I said, not in a politically correct way, like, oh, how can you say that? That's so you know, racist and blah, blah, blah. No, he said it's, uh, uh, he just didn't attach any significance to that concept. And then I asked my college roommate, for many eon ago, who uh, was a biomath, he was in biomathematics at uh, NYU, um, also a person of real professional stature. And his answer was the same. He was just very dismissive. But as I said, not because he was trying to promote the party line. As a scientist, he said, I remember this fellow's name, Danny Tranchina, he said, if there are many obvious social explanations for this lag in African-American performance, say in math and science, and we might add the lag in performance of women in the top tier, the very top tier of math and science. He said, if there are very obvious 
social explanations. Why do you bother now at this point to try to reach to biological explanations? And that, you know, seemed perfectly sensible to me. So uh, on the basis of conversing with people I consider knowledgeable and also very professional, I don't have an ideological axe to grind. On the basis of that, and I'm willing to humbly say that um, if they don't think there's any connection, why should I? If I did, in the face of what they're telling me, believe it, then it would be a prejudice. Which then brings us to your second question, which is not at the high level of science, but at the low level of personal experience. My personal experience is that, of course, everybody carries around with them prejudices, uh, not just when it comes to African Americans, when it comes to women, when it comes to uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed women with large breasts, everybody carries around with them, carries prejudices with them. It would be hard to be have grown up uh, or have yeah, grown in the soil of American society and not and been immune to those prejudices. For me, the question is not whether you carry the prejudices, it's what you do with them. Do you acquiesce in them? Do you encourage them? Or do you fight them and struggle with them? That is to say, to keep reminding yourself, Norm, that's a prejudice. Norm, that's bigoted. Norm, you have no basis for really believing that. Or, Norm, give the guy a chance. Norm, give the girl a chance. You'll be, you might be surprised. So that to me is the, the critical question. Not whether you carry around prejudice, of course you do. The question is whether you encourage the prejudice, acquiesce in the prejudice, or fight against the prejudice. And in my own personal case, I'm confident in being able to say that I fight against it. And not only do I fight against it, but having been for a per portion of my life a uh, university professor, I've had very happy. Um, Outcomes where I've had, I've, uh, I've, I became a mentor to some of my African American students. And uh, I have to tell you, and I know this sounds like a very politically correct uh, thing to say, uh, I have a couple of students and I read their stuff, they send it to me <clears throat> periodically. And I, I say to myself, you know, Norm, Speaking honestly, that's better than you could have done at that age. Yeah, I discovered that. That's better. You know, sometimes I say, oh, okay, Norm, you're being liberal. But then I stop short and say, no, I'm not being liberal. Objectively speaking, it's better than I could have done at that age. And of course, that's a very humbling and gratifying experience. Um, which tells me <clears throat> uh, professors, if they come in with the right attitude, can do wonders in um, facilitating success stories. Of course, at the end of the day, it's up to the student. I have a couple of students right now. They're not my students, but they're, uh, they're not my students any longer, but I continue to mentor them. And they really took to heart 
the things I said about you got to work hard. You got to read. You got to read quality literature. You can't take junk. You're not taking woke courses. You're taking literature and philosophy, and it's got to be serious. And you got to study what you read. You have to study the sentences, how they compose the sentence. You have to learn the vocabulary. Uh, and they became really, they became readers. They became readers, and they're damn good. So, uh, as I said, for me, the critical question is not whether or not you're racist, not whether or not you're prejudiced, not whether or not you're a bigot. The question is, what are you doing with that? How are you dealing with it? Of course, you have racist prejudice. So it would be ridiculous to think otherwise. Yeah, I wasn't even, uh, when I said the biology of race and racism, I wasn't even thinking about uh, questions of like race and IQ, race and intelligence. To me, they're just not only uh, silly, but but irrelevant, um, wrong. Uh, I'm more so thinking in terms of kind of a, your latter point in the sense that like when I, when I came, for instance, from Belarus, I was six years old. So I started first grade here. And I remember like my first interaction with with like black people. Uh, I was definitely nervous. I mean, being like six years old and growing up in Belarus, all you had were ethnic white people or people that looked ethnically Asian for the most part. So just physically being around somebody that you've never seen, a type, you know, a phenotype that you've never seen, your brain, just the way that the human brain is wired, you're going to have some sort of knee-jerk response. But very quickly, you know, being in a neighborhood where uh, a friend down the street is Egyptian, a friend down the block, he's he's Colombian, uh, another best friend, uh, half Italian, half Puerto Rican. Uh, other friends are black. Uh, by the time I reach uh, high school, I'm in a majority black high school. It becomes very difficult to just kind of go through those experiences with more prejudice than what you started with. Now, if you, on the other hand, and I think this is a much more salient to uh, D'Angelo and Kendi, uh, if you, on the other hand, are growing up uh, in a place where like your only interaction with non-whites is like maybe something that you see on TV or uh, 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 just walking down, let's say, on occasion through housing projects, you're always going to have negative associations. And these negative associations are going to breed totally just like like clinically insane probability judgments like when amy wax says something like it is rational to be fearful of a black male in an elevator it's like no first of all whatever she is in yale or whatever uh, university what are you going to be fearing from any male right in an elevator in that situation for you to really get rid of prejudice in, in in a kind of fundamental way you absolutely need some sort of program of desegregation you need to have people living amongst one another in positive contexts, employment, school, just walking down the street. Uh, so to get to D'Angelo, one thing that's fascinating is she begins actually her book with this, like uh, the first couple of chapters are an extended critique of structural racism. And I find very little to disagree with, but there is a kind of bait and switch where she sort of begins a little bit with questions of segregation and, and, and you know, the structural reasons for how things the way they are. But very quickly, she moves it over to, well, actually, white person, you individually, right, walking down the street or you, you know, in your workplace, the responsibility is totally on you. 
How do you feel around Black people? What can you do? What kind of workshops can you participate in so that uh, we could sort of engineer this out of you? It's never actually about what is a proper program of desegregation? What kind of tax regime must we have in place? Right. What kind of, you know, crying will we see? Like, imagine, like, if, imagine if we have like a true program of, of forced desegregation. Suddenly, people that never want to live amongst one another, they're thrown in. Right. And there's nothing they could do about it. People don't want to deal with that. Maybe you could comment on, uh, I guess, D'Angelo more broadly, but also just specifically this idea of like, there is this kind of bait and switch, right? We begin with something that is kind of inarguable, but then the rest of the book is just total nonsense about your own personal feelings as a white person. Well, I'm in the slightly discreet camp from your own. I belong to the camp which was uh, best described by a British, I think he's West Indian, um, fellow, he said, uh, White Fertility is the worst book ever written about any subject. <laughs> so I found nothing redeeming in it from the word white until the word end, as in the end. Um, there's obviously a huge amount to write on the subject called structural racism. I don't believe that um, Robin D'Angelo is best equipped to write in that subject. Uh, I do believe to a certain extent in what's called credentials, academic credentials. She um, received her degree in multicultural education <clears throat> from a community college, I think in Idaho or somewhere. Uh, and first of all, I didn't even know you get degrees in multicultural education. So that, uh, or at least PhDs in multicultural education. So that already uh, left me a bit skeptical about what I'm hearing. But beyond that, her lack of any kind of uh, professional credential, I think she also calls herself at some point a sociologist. Well, that would make me an atomic physicist uh, by, um, uh, by the same credentialing. Um, there, there, there is something, in my opinion, to be said about structural racism. What structural racism to me means is, number one, that there are areas in our society where Black people are uh, vastly disproportionately represented or not represented. In the prison system, they're vastly overrepresented. In certain fields, uh, take the fields of um, uh, physicists and mathematicians, they're vastly underrepresented. Now, before I continue, we have to have some consensus on what we mean by over and underrepresented. Because the mere fact that in a certain professional or social subdivision, one group, there are more representatives of that group in that subdivision than in society as a whole. Let's stop using hypotheticals. Let's use concretes. Otherwise, I lose everybody. Okay, Jews constitute 2% of American society. They're probably about 20% of American lawyers. Okay? Now, 
at a statistical level, Jews are overrepresented at a statistical level. However, what if for simple for simply cultural reasons, Jews for cultural reasons, they gravitate towards law. All right. Are they overrepresented? I, I I have trouble with that concept because that concept presupposes that everybody in every ethnic group should like or want to be in every single profession in exact proportion to what proportion they are of society, their demographic proportion. And if there's if it's slightly higher than their demographic proportion in some subdivision, social or uh, professional, then something racist must be going on. I don't think that's true. Is it racist that the NBA, National Basketball Association, is 70% black? Is that racist? I think that it could be a cultural phenomenon that in a particular group of people, racial or ethnic, a certain uh, preference or appeal exists to some profession, and larger number go into that profession than the proportion of the population. So I think there is the term overrepresented has to be parsed. If you're speaking strictly from a statistical point of view, Jews are 2% of the population, but they're 20% of lawyers. Okay, statistically speaking, they are overrepresented. But does that statistical overrepresentation necessarily uh, mean that something racist? is going on. I don't think that's true. Any more than you have a phenomenon now, the tiger, the Asian, you know, the Asian tiger women, okay? Mothers, the Asian tiger mothers, okay? So if you look at the distribution of academic awards, scholastic awards, the National Merit Scholarship, the math medals and so forth, Asians are wildly, quote unquote, overrepresented, wildly. They have so completely eclipsed, by the way, Jews in these awards. Uh, the best research on this is this guy, Ron Unz, UNZ, who has written a lot on it. So they're wildly overrepresented, overrepresented in quotes. That's true. From a statistical point of view, in all the competitive scholarly um, uh, awards, National Merit Scholarship, um, the, there are separate math competitions and so forth, Jew, uh, Asians are wildly overrepresented. But does that mean there's something racist going on? Or maybe it is, let's leave aside the biological explanation. It may simply be that Asian mothers are like what Jewish mothers used to be. 
in terms of the pressures they exert on their children to succeed academically. That's not racist. That's not racist. So I think the assumption that overrepresentation necessarily means racism, or as it's now called, the disparities. So long as there is a disparity between the percentage in population versus percentage in a particular professional field, that's racist, and that disparity has to be eliminated. Well, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it right now. I'm writing a long article on the recent uh, Supreme Court uh, decision on affirmative action. And the two dissents, as you know, Roberts overruled affirmative action. The two dissents are written by Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. And Katanji Brown-Jackson in particular is very emphatic that wherever there is a disparity, there is racism. And affirmative action can't end until the disparities end. I don't agree with that. I think she, I like Katanji Brown Jackson, but I think she's caught up in all of this woke ideology about disparities. I don't agree with it. I don't agree that uh, every disparity between uh, proportion of population and proportion in the particular professional field traces back to racism. It leaves out culture and it leaves out, sorry to say, and I'm going to say it, it leaves out personal initiative and personal responsibility. I read enough of W.E.B. Du Bois, the greatest of the African-American scholars in the 20th century, and nobody has obviously superseded him in the 21st century thus far. And W.E.B. Du Bois, he was always pointing to racism and the economic uh, lack of opportunity for Black people as the primary, the primary source of their plight, the primary factors in their plight. However, having said that, he was never shy about talking about defects in the African-American community within the community, within the culture that was holding them back. And he was very uh, persistent on that point. There are issues of the African-American family. This is him, it's not me, I have not studied it, it's him. The African-American family, the problem of crime in the black community, which in part traced back to uh, economics, but also within the community itself. So uh, I don't accept the idea that every disparity reveals racism. A disparity can be cultural in its root. And I don't agree that every disparity uh, has no, nothing to do with a cultural or personal work ethic, study ethic. 
Asians on average, on average, study two hours a night. Uh, and according to surveys, they put in about two hours a night in homework, two hours a night in homework. African-Americans, the same surveys show about a half hour a night doing homework. That's going to have consequences in your academic performance. Now, you may say, well, that may trace back to bad schools, bad teachers, and so forth. And there's probably an argument there. And also, by the way, it traces back in part to the baggage that teachers carry with them when they walk into the classroom. Is a math and science teacher going to have a higher expectation of an Asian student than a Black student? Absolutely, yes. Will that have a consequence in terms of the student's performance? Absolutely, yes. So I'm not going to discount any of that. I know it exists. On the other hand, I am not going to turn every Black person into a hapless victim of our society and that they are unable to do anything for themselves. Any, any lag, any lag in their scholastic or professional lives traces back only singularly, exclusively to racism. No, I don't accept that. And I was very disappointed in Katanji Brown Jackson that she did articulate such a narrow, woke view of the universe, this what's now called this disparities discourse. Ibram X. Kendi, he's a moron, I know. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson is an extremely smart woman. Ibram X. Kendi is a moron, but he too, everything is with the disparities. We have to end the disparities. And all the disparities trace back to racism. I don't accept that. Now, let's talk about a different kind of disparity. How about the overrepresentation of blacks in our criminal justice system? Now, does that all trace back to racism? I would say a large part of it traces back to classism. If you're poor in this country, you can't afford a lawyer. And without a lawyer, you're going to have to plea bargain. It's as simple as that. I'm not boasting about it, but I have been uh, in, in the uh, criminal justice system many times. I've been arrested many, many times, many, many times. And I was uh, also involved, like I just came out of a case with Optimum. I assumed Optimum, I sued the Optimum um, a telephone company was a long case. I, it was five visits to the court, uh, one, two, no, around seven visits to the court. The trial went on for quite a long time, kind of wiped me out. You can't do anything without a lawyer. I did pro se. Pro se means without a lawyer. It happens by some stroke of luck, there is a God. I had a decent judge. But in general, when you're in a criminal case, you cannot utter a word. 
Not one word. You know that thing they say, you have your right to defend yourself? Forget it. BS. Complete nonsense. The judge will not even look at you. The judge will not. You're a spectral presence. You can't say one word in court. Everything has to be done through your the interlocutor, your uh, lawyer. Yes, by our wonderful, 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 wonderful system, you get a public defender. You know how long on average you talk to your public defender before the trial? On average, about three minutes. The public defender asks you your name, asks you your age, asks you, can you say, can you summarize in one sentence why you're in here? You give your explanation, that's it. And then they become your lawyer. So that's all a long way of saying, yes, of course, African-Americans are overrepresented in our criminal justice system because they're overrepresented among the poor. And if you're poor, you can't afford a lawyer. Frankly, even if you're middle class, you can't afford a lawyer. A lawyer is $400, $500 an hour. You, uh, you know, with all due respect, Alex, unless you've gone through the criminal justice system, you have no idea what this is like. That alone is grounds for revolution. I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Do you know if you go into a court now, okay, for whatever crime, whatever thing, whatever you committed, you have to bring the lawyer because he can't talk to a judge, okay? The first three to five times, the first three to five times, the judge, you go in because you you were arrested, you go in, the judge turns to the district attorney, the, uh, the people it's called, the people, turns to the people and says, quote, people, are you ready? People always says, no, not ready. And then uh, the judge says, pick a date. Pick a date means pick a date for the next meeting, the next court appearance. So you're wondering, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here, I'll tell you exactly what it has to do with. Ready for this? You come, within a, come to court with a lawyer. It takes about three hours before your case is called. What does your lawyer do for those three hours? He or she's on their iPhone answering email. Okay, they're just sitting there answering email. Okay, you know what you're doing? You're counting $400, $800, $1,200. Then you have to count for them taking the transportation to court and coming to court. Okay, so that's about $1,500. All right, and you know what that's for? That's for not ready, pick a date. So a court gets a, um, uh, the people, the people, the DA gets three to five of those, okay? So you're $10,000 in the hole before anything is even heard. Now, we live in a society where we have telephones, we have email, we have iPhones, we have 10,000 kinds of communication, right? If the people are not ready, why didn't they just email you in the morning? They're not ready. And then you won't have to hire a lawyer to come with you to court. Because the whole point of this disgusting, disgusting criminal justice system is to force you into a plea bargain. 
because you're $10,000 in the hole after the first adjournment, $20,000 in the hole after the third, second adjournment, $30,000 in the hole after the third adjournment, and you could be $50,000 in the hole before you open your mouth. That's how our system works. It is so disgusting. It is so wretched. One of my lawyers, after my fourth, my fourth adjournment, that was out in um, Nassau County. So it took me, it took me two and a half hours to get there. One of my lawyers, he sees a frown on my face when I'm walking out. A very angry frown, by the way. And he says to me, "What are you angry about?" I'm thinking, I said, "Yeah, what am I angry about?" He just made $5,000, and I just got another a German. What am I angry about? What am I angry about? There goes one-third of my yearly salary. What am I angry about? You know? So African-Americans, simply by virtue of being poor, they're going to be overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So we should forget about the class aspect to it. It's not because you're Black. It's because you're poor. But then on top of that, the racism, of course. I'm not going to deny that's stupid. Of course, there's going to be all this prejudging, prejudice, prejudging by the judge and eventually the jury um, about a, uh, any person taken before the court, anybody who's been arrested. Yeah, I recognize that. So there is a, a racial element and there is a, a class element to the disproportion in the criminal justice system. I'm just saying it's not all about racism. Anybody who's gone through that system who doesn't have the money is going to get shafted, period, full stop. One uh, theoretical way that you could sort of uh, uh, perhaps not test, but at least uh, understand maybe how racism might play into just you know all these disparities in criminal justice is when you look at the disparities between uh men and women women that commit for instance identical crimes to men they do get on average something like a third or perhaps a little bit uh even more lenient sentences right and you could you know and there there's there is of course uh, to get back to biology there is a biological basis for this right men uh, in jerk fashion might uh, feel kind of like you know it's that, that that white knight psychology right we want to save women and also i i definitely think there's something to the idea of we need some sort of synthesis of a material and cultural analysis specifically and especially when it comes to race in a way that kind of like blows apart the typical like left right divide right i think you could have a coherent synthesis that doesn't you know paper over uh things that should not be papered over and in fact that's like one of the reasons why i was disappointed with cornell west's race matters he sort of goes in that direction but you know so these chapters are like two or three thousand words each so that he can't really develop that but I, I want to get to like maybe some of the specific examples that you just uh, listed. Like, so for instance, like this idea of is there racism inherent in uh, the fact that there's way more black NBA players versus white NBA players? Now, as a kind of practical matter, when I walk down my neighborhood, four blocks away, there's a basketball court. Eight blocks away, there's another basketball court. There's uh, some major basketball courts further on, about a mile away. Uh, you go a half mile another direction, there's a basketball court. I see no baseball fields. 
Uh, I see no soccer fields. And uh, it seems to me like, first of all, there, you know, there is obviously like a cultural reason why that's going on, but like just even like by the time you get to the cultural part, right, there is this, you know, that famous line, uh, existence precedes essence. Uh, there is something going on, even if you want to get rid of like financial, like the financial question, there is something material happening first, where you know, like I, I think there's a reason why so many black kids, for instance, they might start really playing basketball because maybe they see this is kind of like the only way out. Some yeah. other kids, some other kids, they might see selling drugs is the only way out, right? There is, and that's not to that's not to downplay the purely cultural element to it. But I think even in questions of culture, if you do any kind of synthesis. There is going to be like a little bit of some sort of material baseline that is creating all this. I mean, like even if you do want to play soccer as a black kid, there's no, there's nothing around here, not in this neighborhood, right? You're not going to play soccer. You just won't. Oh, in my neighborhood, a soccer player. We're both from Brooklyn. Soccer players go to Prospect Park. There's lots of mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of soccer going on there. There are major Caribbean leagues uh, hang playing soccer. Uh, look, I'm not going to deny any of that. It'd be stupid to deny it. Of course, that's true. There are very few uh, black tennis players because there are very few black tennis courts, you know, tennis courts in black neighborhoods. Of course, that's true. Same thing with swimming. How many swimming pools do you find in, in you know, in uh, poor neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, whatever you want to call it? Of course, I see that, but I don't. I don't go for the idea that, let's say, there are blacks represent. 10% of the population, but they're only only 9.5% of the legal profession. Aha! Racism. We need affirmative action. No, it may not be racism. There could be disparities without racism. No, it could just be whatever kind of cultural explanation, whatever kind of fluke, I don't know what it is. But there's a way of saying that whenever there's a disparity, there's got to be racism. And then it leaves out any possibility of individual responsibility, uh, cultural difference, and things like that, which might not totally explain the phenomena and maybe not predominantly explain the phenomena, but it's an element. It's an element. And we shouldn't uh, forget that element. And there are elements of, as I said, the surveys show Asian study to do their homework two hours a night. In African-American homes, is about a half hour. And then there's a reverse proportion of time spent watching television. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Why shouldn't I be perfectly honest? I spent a lot of, much too much time as a kid watching television. You want to hear that? When my friends were reading, I spent much too much time. And you know what? I pay for it till this day. Because a lot of what you achieve and not achieve in life goes all the way back to the use of those years between 3 and 13. That's a fact. Those years are fundamental in how you turn out in life. So I freely admit, I spent way too much time as a kid chasing girls, trying to be popular, trying to wear nice clothes, and that had real consequences. To this day, and I'm going to be 70, I curse myself for all the idiocies I squandered my time on as a kid. 
maybe in part I say it was okay because I got it out of my system. And then after I got out of my system, I became very serious about life. But there are consequences. If you're going to spend two hours doing homework a night versus a half hour, or in reverse, spending five hours a night watching television versus one hour watching television. In 1970 was the last time I ever watched television. Yes, that's right, more than a half century ago. I got rid of the TV. I got to college and I said, you know what? You're an adult now. You're not going to watch television anymore. Those are decisions you make and they have, they have, I'm not going to say positive or negative, but they have real consequences. And to try to ignore that, to pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah, in some cases it didn't exist. Frederick Douglass, he didn't start reading till he was 18, 19. And he still became a brilliant stylist, a brilliant orator. Yeah, some people, well, they can do it. But in general, uh, we shouldn't kid ourselves about lost years. And those years are vital. To get back to Robin D'Angelo, what do you, what do you think about, um, so in the book, like, like it's supposed to be, I guess, a liberal uh, view of race and racism and whatnot. But and maybe this is just an extension of liberalism, and I'm just being naive. But uh, it's also highly, highly authoritarian. One thing that's fascinating is, although she is a consultant, and this is how she makes her money, you know, besides writing of books, uh, she keeps peppering these anecdotes in her book uh, about these workshops that she convenes, uh, full of like white participants and black participants about racism, anti-racism, and. Again and again, she alludes to some sort of racist incident in this or that workshop, but very rarely does she actually get into the specifics of what these incidents are. It's as if she's scared of getting to the specifics because she knows that if you actually put whatever situation transpired out there, people are going to start using their heads for good or for ill, and they're going to start wondering, well, is this actually racist? Can we break this apart some other way? Can we view it some other way? So she's like, you know what? I don't even want to deal with this. I'm just going to uh, assume that it's racist. I'm going to have the reader assume the same way. And also, by the way, if you start arguing back, and she does say this part explicitly, if you start arguing back either as a reader or as a participant in one of these workshops, that's simply because you have a lot of racist feelings. So not only does she just totally, you know, sidetrack any possible conversation and put an end to it uh, in that way, she also kind of really gatekeeps a very, very specific interpretation of racism, her specific interpretation of racism that benefits, for instance, like her job, right? This is what she does professionally. Um, and... You know, it's almost like design in a way where like if I were to like run this thought experiment of, oh, if I were to design a book and an anti-racist program that is specifically tailored to get as many people against you as possible, get as many people against the notion of anti-racism as possible, make people as resentful as possible so they can't be part of any real long-term political project, it really would look like this book. Um I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I found the whole premise of what she's doing so completely ridiculous that it's just obviously it's a business. DEI has become a business. They hire all these people. Companies pretend to be fighting racism. People make a living off of it. 
They use this expression, we're interrupting racism. What, what does that mean? What do you mean you're interrupting racism? Stop. Racism, stop. <laughs> just a moment's reflection. It's just the stupidest thing on God's earth. How do you interrupt racism? What does it mean to interrupt racism? And there's also there's also an assumption there, right? If you interrupt, uh, it's almost as if you are expecting it to come back in full force, as if like you're hitting pause in a cassette or something, and then right. it's just continues on as it always did. Racism is as omnipresent and omnipotent as they make it out to be. Then interrupting racism is the equivalent of a twig on a train track interrupting a high speed locomotive heading in the twig's direction. Mm -hmm. If it's really as omnipotent and uh, omnipresent as they claim, how could you interrupt it? How could you interrupt it? Who even needs her? Workplaces nowadays are overwhelmingly integrated. If you have differences of opinion, okay, there may be a human, oh God, human relations. No, I take that back. Then you should learn to have the courage and the, the, uh, the spine to just call it out. You say, you know, as people do nowadays, I don't like what you just said. Okay, fine. And then you can argue it out. You can harbor resentment. I don't know what you could do, but the idea that you're fighting racism with these stupid sessions of hers, uh, just it just strikes me as, what does this have to do with the real world? That's, that you, you, yes, you wanna have a, um, you wanna have a uh, congenial workplace. That's true. And people should be able to express their differences and the fact that they feel insulted. Look, guess what? People feel insulted by a thousand different things. People in general, myself included, can be thin-skinned. Somebody can make a reference to uh Jesus, did you see her on TV? She is so fucking fat. And then there is a fat person in that room. Are they going to feel hurt? Yeah. Or somebody says, you know, I went out with this guy last night. I couldn't believe when the door opened. He was so fucking short. And then there are going to be short people in the room. And they're going to be hurt. You know, hurt. Uh, self-consciousness, thin skin, skinnedness. That's all part of life. You can't eliminate it. And guess what? If you say that person you saw on the television set that like that last night she was so fucking large, that's not going to make a fat person feel better. You know, that's just life. And to the extent that people say things which give offense because of race, yeah, some of it should be cool. And some of it, all right, you could say, you know, I didn't like that. I, a lot of times, because, you know, given my politics, I'm around people who say all sorts of things about Jews. And they feel that they got a free right because of who I am, you know. They say all sorts of things. 
sometimes I think they go, they go a little bit over the top. And sometimes, you know, rarely, rarely, but I do. I'll say, no, I didn't, I don't really like that. But most of the time I say, okay, I've known this guy for ages. He's a nice guy. I don't really agree with what he's saying, but it's not the end of the world. Let's just move on. So I don't see what's the function, aside from making money, what's the function of these people? You have you have work relationships and you try to in, work them out individually. And sometimes you might talk to another coworker and say, he or she said that. And then they'll say, okay, I think we should talk to them about it because that's really wrong. That's just, you know, it seems to me that just comes with the turf and it's part of being life. And I don't see any function she serves. I don't even understand. She acts like black people need her. Mm -hmm. as an interlocutor well guess what black people were told are very articulate why do they need her why do they need her they can't speak for themselves black people are so shy they're so reserved they're so reticent not in my experience not in my experience they're quite able to defend themselves just like everybody else is able to defend themselves and if they if they do come from let's say a the south and they are church going and they tend to be reticent, then they can always go over to another coworker who's a slugger, who comes out you know uh, swinging and that tell the coworker and then it, it gets resolved anyhow. I don't even see the pur the purpose of these DEI folks except to wreak terror, where everybody's walking on eggshells. Um, terrified. I have a student, a uh, young fellow now. I'm going to have to get off, but we can continue it. There's no problem. Um, a fellow, his, I won't tell you his name because he'll get in trouble. Brilliant young man in the classics, like your field. Well, you did some classics, right? That was one of my majors, yeah. Right, in the classics. And he's at a top school. And he tells me the classics have now been hijacked by uh, transgender people. And I say, what, it's, what is it like in class? He says, I'm absolutely terrified to say anything. And I said, well, oh, I should say he's in the PhD program. And I said, so what are you going to do when you go into job market? He says, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm finished. I'm quitting. I'm not going to. Uh, it's impossible in those programs now. So this whole woke, hyper, race conscious and gender, so-called gender, because gender has no more, more meaning, so I'm going to call it sex, hyper sex conscious atmosphere, yeah, it creates a reign of terror. People are absolutely terrified to say anything anymore in class because who is it going to offend? Yeah, so that's been an, that's been an effect, but in terms of does it have any, is there any necessity for it? I think it's ridiculous. It's painting these folks as being, you know, like African-Americans as being so passive and so uh, filled with victimhood. That's just not true. You go to a post office and you have an African-American clerk. Are they passive? Not in my experience. You call up a, a company 
uh, and you get a person answering the phone who's clearly of you know African American or Latino background, are they suddenly very deferential when they hear my name is Finkelstein? That's not been my experience. This is one of the benefits of like diversity that people underplay. You read like if you've never been around people that are like a little, you know, less deferential than they're used to, a little more aggressive, a little more kind of like not with the bullshit, you know, whether it's like Russians, whether it's black people, like you're actually like not testing yourself in a way that's going to be useful to you. Right. So why do you need her? What role? She hangs out. Black. She says, black people trust me. No, Robin, black people think you're a stupid flake. You know, they know it. They know it's a gimmick. They know you're a flake. They don't trust you. And we don't need you to moderate these sessions. It's all completely ridiculous, interrupt racism. And maybe right before right before you go, we can make a couple of wild surmises about Robin D'Angelo's psychology. Because I mean, I'm sure just like me, uh, you felt as you were reading the book, like there is like just like something disturbing going on with her. I mean, like first of all, like she's first of all, she's a complete sicko. It's, yeah. Anybody, you know, the worst Jews are the Jewish converts because they're so out to prove they're really Jewish. That they always the, the black most, Israelites, the most of all, the black, the Hebrew Israelites, the black well, Israelites standing in Union Square, getting white girls to kiss their boots and maybe well, go home with them. It's different. That's sadomasochistic. But yeah. I'm, I'm saying uh, Jewish converts are always the most pro-Israel because they're always trying to prove how Jewish they are. And so she's always trying to prove how down with the hood she is. She's a complete sicko. At the point in the book when she says all white people think blacks are monkeys and apes, and I'm thinking to myself, well, Angelo, well, Robin, I think you gave away a wee, too, a wee bit too much at that moment. There I recall Freud and projection. Yeah, what, what, one thing that's very disappointing about all this is like, I'm not sure if you know about her biography, but she did grow up in actual, actual poverty. She had like definite stints of homelessness, actual homelessness. She, you know, she went to college very late in life. Um, I mean, let's just call it, be a little controversial, call it the Glenn Lowry problem, right? In the list of people that are disappointing based on their backgrounds, right? They should know better. And, you know, like you mentioned the the whole HR thing, like, Besides just like treating people, uh, you know, black people as passive, she also treats them very much like they're total aliens. Like there was this one workshop that she participated in. And when she felt that she said something that maybe might have been racist, the way that she addresses this problem is she she turns to this black woman and she says, I hope to get the opportunity to repair the racism I perpetrated against you. This is not how human beings speak. If you like, especially like if you're a white person, you've been around non-whites, you're never, ever, ever going to speak this way. She talks about in the book how she's like walking, you know, uh, that, like to some like picnic, right? And she hopes that the people that she's supposed to meet are not this like all black group, you know, in this like picnic in the grass. She's literally nervous of a black group having a picnic in the grass somewhere. I think that says a lot about her psychology. And again, I would hope 
that, you know, given her background, she would know better. But then again, maybe she maybe she was totally segregated her entire life. You know, segregation back then, it was not as if there was necessarily a lot of race race mixing, even if you were equally as poor. She's a very undistinguished person who wants to do something which makes her feel like she's important. So now she has become the necessary link between black people and white people because black people trust her. They trust me. So it's a way of in her own mind, elevating her importance. She suddenly has an important function to, uh, to perform in society, to serve as the, the uh, interlocutor for black people with white people. She, um, and she has this particular loathing for what's come to be called Karens, namely mm -hmm. successful white women. Now, there are a lot of things, successful white liberal women. Yeah, there are a lot of things to say about that type, you know, the type you see in Central Park. <laughs> it's true, but her loathing comes from another place. It's just painfully obvious that she was... Maybe she wasn't homeless. I don't believe these stories, but okay, let's. But she comes from a less than distinguished background, feeling always inferior, resentful, resentiment, as Nietzsche would say, feeling resentment at those successful white women, she being, they being what she in her heart secretly wishes to be. And so there's this uh, kind of sick resentment of these uh, Karens, which is one of the high points of her book. But we'll meet again. Yeah, so we're going to keep dragging this out as long as possible. So we're going to do Kendi later. And guys, like if you thought this was wild, I think we're going to have even a lot more fun with the Kendi discussion. There's just to tease out a little bit, there's a character that appears in uh, Kendi's, let's just call it a fictional memoir named uh, Black Smurf, right? Um, and and we're going to talk about that and, and his whole uh, relevance to these discussions. But this has been Artifact 44 with Norman Finkelstein. The book again is I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. And we'll see you again soon for our discussion of Kendi. Thanks for watching.